Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded, a podcast all about creating visibility, paths for growth, and opportunity for entrepreneurs. We focus on those entrepreneurs who are statistically underrepresented in the startup ecosystem. Your hosts are Zena Island, president of X Plus PR, a media relations agency, angel investor Aurelia Flores, managing member of Athena Digital Media Group, a digital marketing agency, and angel investor Christina Francis, president of Esteem Logic, an information technology consulting and training firm. In each episode, you will meet a new startup founder, hear about their company and where they are now. We then focus on one key challenge facing that entrepreneur, a challenge that is common among startups. Each episode also features a guest expert to weigh in on the challenge. Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded. Black communities have a long history of investing in their own businesses, but the disbursement of Black communities and the takeover of Black businesses by corporate interests have changed this. Additionally, corporate America has made it easier, cheaper, and faster to buy from them than to buy from local community businesses, which is the vast majority of Black businesses. Matter of fact, experts state that out of every dollar spent by Black Americans, less than two cents of that dollar is spent with Black-owned businesses. And while a dollar circulates among banks, shopkeepers, and other businesses for nearly a month in Asian American communities before that money flows out of the neighborhood, 19 days in Jewish communities and in Black neighborhoods, the time from receiving to spending a dollar is just six hours. There are a lot of structural dynamics behind those numbers, lack of access to capital to be able to start businesses, lack of bank ownership and consolidation of the industry overall, and other things, all could be topics for their own show. But today, we're gonna talk about the importance for us, Black Americans and allies alike, to go the extra distance to ensure that we spend a dedicated portion of the money we already spend each day with Black businesses. With Black buying power currently over one trillion per year in the US and on the road to hit 1.5 trillion by 2021, can you imagine what we could do if all of us spent just a fraction of that amount dedicated to Black businesses? If all Black households making more than 40000 per year were to dedicate just 5% of their spending to Black businesses, we could make a huge impact. And what if all American households pledged the same? As business ownership is a huge driver of wealth for families and communities, this would move the needle in wealth for Black households, communities, and our economy as a whole. The racial gap is not a new problem. As of 2016, the net worth of a typical white family was nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family. And for those who like numbers, that's 171,000 versus 17,150. And this data is according to the Brookings Institute. And a lot has been written and researched about the US government creating these policies with homeownership, lending, and so on. More importantly, there are a lot of organizations and individuals focused on increasing wealth in the black community. And right now they are finally getting some well-deserved and overdue attention. Today, we're joined by Kezia Williams, founder of Black Upstart and driving force behind myblackreceipt.com. The Black Upstart teaches aspiring black entrepreneurs how to start a successful business through an intense, culturally relevant pop-up school. And most recently, Kezia launched the My Black Receipt Initiative aimed to empower the Black community with economic independence and mobilize consumers to learn and spend $5 million with Black-owned businesses between June 19th, Juneteenth, 
through Independence Day, which is July 4th. If you haven't yet gone to myblackreceipt.com, please do so to learn more. We invited Kezia to talk about her launch of the My Black Receipt campaign and more broadly, talk about the opportunity and necessity to reinvigorate Black-owned businesses and strengthen the path to wealth and job creation for Black Americans, while also stimulating the U.S. economy. Kezia, we've been waiting to have you on the show for quite some time. I think before we had another topic, but now is a divine time to have you. Thanks so much for being here and joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I am excited to be here and have a conversation about Black business, about Black wealth. Y'all are all looking lovely in our <laughs> quarantine, socially distancing spaces. So yes, thank you so much for having me. So let's start with a statistic that we've all read, seen, or heard. There are 2.6 million Black-owned businesses in the United States, but more than 95% of them are sole proprietorships with no employees. That's only 109,000 of them, that's about 4%, have at least one paid employee. In your opinion, what impact does this have on economic growth and wealth for Black America? Yeah, I'm happy you bring that statistic up. Um, that's one of the statistics that I bring up when I, I usually speak that there are 2.56 million Black entrepreneurs, but only 109,000 of them have the capacity to employ at least one person. I like to put that number in further context. I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and there are 256. 7,000 businesses that have the capacity to employ at least one person. So that means if all 110,000 employers, Black employers, were to move to Washington, D.C. area, they would represent fewer than 50% of the businesses that create jobs. And I think it's important for us to talk about the context, right? Because when you hear 109,000, some people may erroneously think that that's a large number, <laughs> when it's not. I mean, Washington, D.C. isn't a state yet. I mean, we want it to be 51st state. It's not a state yet. But if we represent less than 50% in the D.C. area, that's a problem. So whenever we have these buy black movements where people are actively going out and looking for these brick and mortar, you know, shops to, to shop black in, to buy black in, you see why they're knocking up against an issue, why it may be difficult to find visible black owned businesses doing business in actual physical structures difficult. I'm going to take that number a step further. Um, in recent reports, this is maybe about a couple years ago, I read that there are 18.5 million Black people looking for jobs so or employed. So that's the, the workforce, right? Things have probably changed because of COVID. But those 109,000 Black-owned businesses employ fewer than a million people. So I'm going to say that one more time. 18.5 million Black people in the workforce are looking for jobs, but Black employers employ fewer than a million people. That means if tomorrow, if every Black employee wanted to work for a Black entrepreneur who also created jobs, they couldn't. But it also presents another conundrum. If tomorrow, if every non-Black employer decided to expunge Black people off of their payroll, we would be what, ladies? SOL. <laughs> so 
like when it comes to black economic empowerment with black upstart one of the companies that i own it's imperative that we teach black people not just how to start a business but how to start a business that can create jobs so we don't have to go begging other people to do for us what we are capable of doing for ourselves a popular meme on instagram is we don't need more jobs black jobs we need more black job creators and i think when we do that we are better able to circulate the black dollar in black spaces so um Kezia, I'm going to jump in with this and what you're saying. There's a client of mine. Her name is Vanessa Braxton. And she Hi, is... Vanessa. Huh? Hi, Vanessa. <laughs> <laughs> Just shouting her out. <laughs> she will love that, believe me. And um, the thing about it, she's a manufacturer and distiller of vodka. She makes her own mm -hmm. vodka. And one of the things that has been coming up in her interviews lately with a lot of interviews, and that's with the black media and the, the uh, mainstream media, how was she able to switch over from making vodka to alcohol? So she was making, you know, I mean, excuse me, hand sanitizers. Excuse me, hand sanitizers. So she was able to make hand sanitizers. And how was she able to do that? And she was like, I'm a manufacturer. I'm a distiller. Mm -hmm. I own my own ish. And... Yeah. <laughs> She said, you know, I was able to do that because I own my own manufacturing company. And that was right. one of the things she said that we need to start doing more often is owning our own manufacturing companies so that we can have them in black communities and employ more black people. So right. at that point, you are absolutely correct. And I'm glad we brought that up. And I'm glad you were able to break that down and explain it. And yeah, thank you for that. I think we have to, what I hear from that is two things, actually. So one, um, Vanessa is solving a problem in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important, right? Because in 2020, right, all of us had these plans. We're like, oh, I'm going to get an 800 credit score in 2020. 2020 is going to be the year I'm going to be the first black millionaire in the family. 2020 is going to be the year I'm like, buy nine to five. I'm about to be my own nine to five, cutting myself my own check. And then 2020, like, hit us like a, you know, a gut punch, right? And a lot of people were like, you know what? my purpose has changed. It's probably not possible for me to employ myself. It's not possible for me to have a good credit score anymore when I'm struggling to make ends meet. And what I like to tell people is that your purpose never changed. The plan had to change, right? The purpose remains the same in 2020. You will achieve that goal, but the plan has to pivot. And it sounds like what Vanessa did was say, yeah, I was making alcohol, but I see the demand is hand sanitizer. So how do I meet that need in a way where I can keep my business solvent? And I think with business owners, right, sometimes we have these grandiose visions, right? But we also have to realize that every grandiose vision, the entrepreneur have to use what they have, start where they are, and do what they can. Black entrepreneurs specifically, I think, can learn a lesson during this time. I think we have to look around Black spaces and ask ourselves, what are their needs that are being unmet? Even before COVID, there were communities, people outside of our community supplying the needs that we wanted, and we were supplying them our capital in exchange. When you look at uh, the, the last Nielsen Consumer Index report, I think it's been a couple years since they put out the report, but usually it doesn't change from year to year. 
The types of businesses that Black people usually start are administrative services, health services, other, I don't know what's in other, I guess that's a catch-all, waste remediation, like those are the top five businesses that Black people start. But when you look at the products, that Black people over-index in spending. You see things like ethnic care care and beauty aids. You see things like refrigerated drinks, contraceptives. You see, you know, so you see all of these lists of items that we over-index on spending. You put those lists up beside one another, you see that very rarely is there an intersection, right? So we have $1.3 trillion worth of buying power and we're spending it over here, but starting businesses over on the other side. The businesses that usually supply those needs are owned by people who do not look like us. And sometimes people get upset about that. They're like, well, I don't know why they have to come into our communities and open businesses and we have to pay them that money. But what they're missing is they have to pay them their money. If we make the things that we buy, then we can be intentional about circulating our buying power, right? Our buying, our spending authority. Because I'm very specific about the words that I use. Our $1.3 trillion is spending authority, but it's not powerful if we do not spend it making Black communities stronger and Black entrepreneurs more equipped to scale their businesses, right? Creating more Vanessa's. So I always like to tell people that our $1.3 trillion worth of spending authority should not be a blank check for other communities to sign. That is so true. And thank you for saying all that. And uh, we know the coronavirus pandemic has only compounded the financial challenges faced by the Black community. And Black entrepreneurs, for example, were disproportionately affected with a 40% drop in the number of working Black business owners. Oh, yeah far greater percentage than any other racial group. And that just came out. You know that, yeah. that, that yeah. just came out. It did. How do you feel about that? And what should we do about it? This is what I think. Um, the PPP was set up for white male business owners to win. <laughs> I know that's a controversial statement, but that doesn't make it any less true. No, when right. I read that only 10% of Black business owners got access to the payment protection pro program loans, which in turn reverse over to grants if you use it in the right way, I think that that's policy benefiting a certain population of people while disadvantaging another population of people. When you put stipulations in there and you say that the money must flow through big banks and you know that big banks have not historically lended to Black entrepreneurs, Houston, we have a problem. Why haven't they lended money to Black entrepreneurs? Because they could not bring collateral to the table that say, if I default from my loan, I can sell my collateral. You can own my collateral to fulfill my obligation. Why don't we have any collateral? Well, after you ask, we have to look at history for that. Well, for years, our ancestors were busy cultivating wealth for you. Right? The wealth that was passed down from generation to generation to generation so that you can walk yourself into a big bank and say that I own this house and this other investment property over here. So if I default on my loan, here is the money that you can use. When we have conversations about policies that benefit all entrepreneurs, we cannot be blind to the historical disadvantages that Black entrepreneurs have. Not because they don't have the knowledge, the skills, and the abilities to start and scale a successful enterprise, but because they did not start out with the same benefits that a white entrepreneur did.
So with the payment protection program, they did not consider the different caveats that Black entrepreneurs take to resource their businesses. CDFIs were an afterthought. Community development financial institutions, which were created to provide capital to underserved communities to include Black entrepreneurs and others. They did not consider the sole proprietor, right, that may not have an EIN, but they're driving Uber, they're driving Lyft to make ends meet, right? Sole proprietors are considered last, like you get what's left over. Well, if only 109,000 businesses are employing other people, well, that's 2.4 million Black entrepreneurs that you could potentially, potentially be leaving out of the equation. We cannot have blanket solutions for everybody when we know that everybody does not have the same experience in America. We see that with Black Lives Matter, right? We know that in America, Black life was too cheap to some people. Why do we know that Black life was too cheap for some people? Because we had to keep protesting and pushing the message out there. If Black life was expensive, then we would have stopped having this conversation when Trayvon Martin was murdered. But then Mike Brown happened, and we had to have the conversation again. And then Sandra Bland happened, and we had to have the conversation again. And then Philando Castile happened, and we had to have the conversation again. And now here we are at George Floyd. We peacefully protested, but we didn't have a conversation about systemic change until property started to become destroyed. We can talk about you know, whether rioting and, you know, walking away with products that you did not pay for, burning down property that you did not own is ethical or not. But we cannot negotiate around the fact that it worked because suddenly black life became expensive. We cannot afford to delay phase one of reopening right now. Why can't we afford to delay it? Because right now the economy is in trouble. So what can we do to bring them to a conversation at our table, not as equals, right? Versus guests sitting on the outskirts of the table and say, how can we negotiate a solution that benefits you and not everybody? We need to have this public conversation and say, this is not for underserved, this is not for minorities, this is not for the underprivileged, that no, this is specifically for Black people, because right now in America, your life is cheap, and we need to raise the value of that. With the payment protection program, they had a blanket solution for all entrepreneurs, but had they taken it back to Black entrepreneurs, we could have had the same intentional conversation that we're having around Black Lives Matter about Black entrepreneurs, and I think that the solution would have looked different. Well, we are so, so excited to have your excitement and your passion with us, and this has been a long a long journey for you, right? Like you've spent yeah. over 10 years dedicating your time to transforming entrepreneurship processes and experiences mm -hmm. for black millennials through multiple initiatives, right? The Black Upstart, which we're um, gonna talk about in a minute, leading the United Negro College Fund's National Entrepreneurship Initiative. Mm -hmm. We wanna know a little bit more about Kezia. <laughs> Why is this so important to you? You are obviously passionate about this. Why is black ownership and um, business, um, entrepreneurship, how, how is this relevant to you? What's your story? Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. So um, I was taught, like probably many of you ladies, that the definition of success was 
go to high school, graduate, you get your diploma, you go to college, you get your degree. My mom wanted me to go back to college, get another degree. I was like, no, mom, done. <laughs> you go and you get a good government job, not just a government job. It's got to be a good government job with benefits. And that is the definition of success, right? And so I followed that entire formula and I got my diploma, I got my degree, I got a good government contracting job. And for me, that was supposed to represent success. But what I realized is there were some rules along the way that people did not adequately communicate to me as a Black person working in a majority space. I erroneously thought that because I was hired into a job that I would be treated like everyone else in the workplace. No one told me that when I was applying for the job that I would get more callbacks if I took Kezia off the resume. That I would get more callbacks if I took NAACP, my involvement in Urban League, off the resume. That me putting a sorority on the resume might count against me even though my sorority was a public service <laughs> sorority. It wasn't just drinking and partying, et cetera. That's a cultural disconnect. They didn't tell me that when I went to work with my natural hair, that my boss might ask me, hey, is that vacation hair? I know you're going on vacation next week. So when you come back, is your hair going to look like how it did the, the previous week? Nobody told me that that was going to happen. No one told me that the woman working for me as my administrative assistant, when she quit, would tell me that she was getting paid $15,000 more than me. White woman, blonde hair. My last year working in the federal government, I had, I was working as an analyst. I was in uh, uh, counterintelligence, counter weapons of mass destruction, um, with CI, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, counter weapons of mass destruction. I had a top secret SCI security clearance. Like I thought that I had waited past all of that to get to a point where I was solidly six figures. And my boss changed. So like I had a new manager, a white woman. And I was writing national security reports that were seen by the National Security Council. We didn't get up to the office of the president. And she asked for my resume. This was interesting because I had the job at this point for six years in this particular division. And she looked at my resume and she said, well, I only see one degree here. Um, I see about six years of work experience. The type of work that you're doing requires an advanced degree. So I think that the work that you're doing is above your pay grade. And instead of generating these high level reports, your new responsibility is going to be making travel arrangements for people in the office. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> okay. Well, am I still going to get paid over six figures? And she was like, well, yeah, you will, but this is going to be your new responsibility. I was organizing a nonprofit at that time, helping to get young Black philanthropists to fund nonprofits. And so for me, I was like, well, this job to me is just a paycheck, but my true passion and purpose is outside of the workplace. So I would go to work eight to three, four o'clock, I would start working on my nonprofit. Three months later, she came back to me and she said, well, um, I actually think that organizing travel is above your pay grade. So we're gonna change your responsibilities and your new responsibilities will be making badges for the office. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. Well, am I still gonna be getting paid six figures? And she was just like, yeah, but your responsibilities have changed. I was like, that's fine. Eight to three, I'll work my paycheck. Four to whenever, I'll work my purpose with my nonprofit. But then three months later, 
she came back to me and she said, we're changing your responsibilities again. Get your chair and follow me. And I got my chair and I followed her right outside of the men's and women's bathroom. And she said, your new responsibility is going to be buzzing people who do not have a clearance in and outside of the bathroom all day. You will not have access to your computer. You will not have access to your phone. You will sit in a chair with your badge and you will make sure that they can go and do their business. And when they come out, go on about their way. And I asked myself at that point, was six figures enough? Right? Was six figures enough to sell my dignity to come to work every day and buzz people into the bathroom when I know that I was called for much more? And I remember calling my mother and asking her, was it okay to quit my job? I knew I had savings, but when savings ran out, I knew I would have to call on who? My mom. <laughs> so she was just like, yes, baby, you can, you can quit your job, right? And I'm not sure if any of y'all have ever quit a job that you did not like, but like when you, when you submit that resignation, for me, it won't even two weeks, sorry, you know, whatever. It was not two weeks, it was, I quit. <laughs> like, hey, thank you so much for the opportunity. I will not be sitting outside this bathroom. Today is my last day. Here's my badge. Here is my computer that I wasn't using and I am done. I'm gone, right? Quit. But then I realized, and this was a Thursday, that that Friday was going to be the last time that I got a check. And my nonprofit organization at that time was all volunteer led. And I remember calling up unemployment and asking them if they would, if they could cut me a check, like, hey, I heard that I get 50% of my, my salary with unemployment. And they were like, did you say you quit your job though? And I was like, yeah, I quit my job. So and they were like, well, you quit your job, there's no unemployment. And it was then that it dawned on me that my ability to resource myself was directly connected to my ability to stay employed, usually within a majority workplace, right? I realized that the hand that was feeding me at that time also had the power to starve me at that time. I believe it was divine intervention that while I was looking for a job, a woman that volunteered with me in my nonprofit organization said, what you're doing is entrepreneurship, though right now you're calling it philanthropy, and we want you to come and lead our national entrepreneurship program and stand it up from the ground up. What I realized in standing up the program, the curriculum, the summits, going out and recruiting and asking students if they wanted to be involved, that really was their parents and their big brothers and sisters who wanted to be involved, Black women especially, because Black women will lose $840,000 over their career, not because they're not smart, right? Not because they're not diligent, right? Not because they don't come to work and do everything that they should, everything that their employer has asked them to do, plus some, but simply because they are Black and they are women. And their stories that they told me at, while I was recruiting for the UNCF program was the exact same story that happened to me. It is not fair to expect a black person to work two times as hard and be two times as smart and show up and be two times as good. When I have the same diploma, the same degree, and the same job qualifications as somebody else, but I have to stand for separate and unequal pay. And so my story centers around the whole narrative that you cannot be economically independent as a black person unless you have multiple streams of income and you are able to feed yourself with your own hand so that nobody else has the power to start. Kezia, there's so much to unpack on that one. <laughs> so I, I too quit my job after 12 years. So everything you said about no one ever said this or that, you know, I would say no one ever told me that success and stepping up the corporate ladder would mean bruising your soul every step of the way. Oh, no yeah. one ever said that you would yeah. get a seat at the table, but you would be corporately neutered at the same time. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and your point on divine intervention, divine pausing and timing, I think is, is, is great. But I, I want to ask you, <clears throat> I think we're going to, we're going to end up our show. We're going to end up doing a whole series on <laughs> being a black woman in America and corporate America. Yeah. I think we all have yeah. stories that are corporately traumatic and, and that, that, that impacts us in different ways. But I want to get us to two things. One, I'd love for you in, in that transition sparked Black Upstart. And so, so what did you, how did you formulate what you want a Black Upstart to be? And then if mm-hmm. you can also transition that into this movement that you have right now for myblackreceipt.com. Because yeah. in that circles, everything you've been talking about, job creation, you know, different paths for people, being able to work your paycheck and your purpose at the same time, sustainability. So let's try and uh, kind of get the, what inspired you about the Black Upstart and then what, what was the catalyst to launch My Black Receipt? Yeah, so again, Divine Intervention, a Black woman hired me into the role of the National Entrepreneurship Program, um, Senior Relationship Manager at UNCF. And um, like I said, my first job, like literally when I, when I pulled up on that job, <laughs> I got a MOU and it was about a hundred pages and my directive was breathe life into the program, right? And so I developed a curriculum in partnership with really incredibly talented faculty members from HBCUs and black faculty from predominantly white institutions, PWIs across the country. Um, we created a curriculum, which when it was given to us by one of our contractors had about four hours of curriculum about black entrepreneurs. It's like one hour was Oprah, Two hours was uh, Master P. And then actually, y'all, it wasn't even four hours, y'all. It was four minutes. Sorry, because as I was saying the hours, I was like, I wish I needed two hours on Master P. It was one minute on Oprah, y'all. It was one minute on Oprah. It was two minutes on Master P. And then it was a minute on Martin Luther King. And I had to ask myself, was Martin Luther King, was he? Was he an entrepreneur? And I was like really negotiating that. I don't know. I mean, you, you church, a church is a 501c3, it's a business, right? But I was just like, we have to kind of make that case. But then we had 300 more minutes of entrepreneurs that did not look like a program where one of the qualifications was you had to be black to participate. And so what I love about our faculty working group is we reworked that entire curriculum where 99% of the content showed entrepreneurs that look like them. So when it was time for us to start recruiting students to get access to this curriculum and this program, y'all, I was super fired up. So I know y'all see now I'm a type A personality. So like I would go to the HBCUs and I would be like, who wants to be an entrepreneur? And the students in the room would look at me cross-eyed. They'd be like, huh, what, what, what is that? Entrepreneur who? And I'd be like, who wants to be their own boss? And they'd be like, Mm-mm, nope, not me. I want to do it. Like, that's, <laughs> not, that's not the way to success. I wasn't taught that way. Job, girl. But when I say, who wants $20,000 in scholarship support? Then all of the students would be like, oh my gosh, me, I want this scholarship support. And as I said in my previous comments, when those conversations concluded, when the presentation concluded, the kids all wanted to talk to me about the scholarship dollars. It was the adults that wanted to talk to me about the entrepreneurship because they had experienced the pain of employment, specifically black employment in majority spaces. And so I ended up going to UNCF after doing about a year of recruiting. And I said, I think we have an opportunity here. I think we should expand our program to teach adults. Like, don't you think that would be brilliant? And they were like, no, (laughs) that's not what we hired you to do. And I was like, 
well, okay. And they were like, but if you want to do it, you have our blessing. So, you know, my man raised no food. So I went ahead and attorney prepared some paperwork and say, can you endorse this in writing? That if I did this on my own, it would belong to me and I would own it. And fortunately, the man who approved that, chief of staff in UNC after an time, and also my mentor endorsed it. He said, you have my 100% full blessing to go and try your idea out. And so two months later, I said, well, let me see if anybody, if any adults really want to learn about entrepreneurship without a $20,000 scholarship. In fact, we're going to be charging you, right? So I'm trying to be the hand that feeds me. So we put out an application and our goal was to get 40 people to enroll in a black entrepreneurship boot camp that would span over six days and two weeks. And uh, we got 123 applications within the first three days and were blown away by the response. And we were like, well, this was just a test, but I guess now we got to actually do it. <laughs> so we held our first boot camp November 2015. Uh, we had 20 entrepreneurs in that class. We taught black, uh, we taught business canvas development, lean startup methodology, prototype development, pitch tech, pitch deck creation. Uh, we had them actually um, do a demo day where people could see the products that they built. We taught them fundraising. So how you can raise money from your networks, how can you turn your contacts into capital, and from there expanded the program, started in D.C., expanded to Charlotte, Durham, um, Charlotte, Durham, Raleigh, we've started in Atlanta, New Orleans, we've recently opened up a pop-up school pre-COVID in Tulsa, Oklahoma, done activations there in 2019 and 2020, we served in SYTV, Southern Africa, Johannesburg, um, we were there, and so like the program has expanded since then to serve uh, Black entrepreneurs, but really the catalyst of it was my work with UNCF and adults coming and, uh, you know, asking me that question. How does this relate to my Black receipts? Well, our business, like every other business, like Vanessa's business, was impacted. And we had to pivot. All of our coursework is in the classroom. So like, I'm in the class, we have a bench of 30 other faculty members that help implement a curriculum that's centered in Black case studies, right? So it's Black curriculum, um, Black classroom, Black entrepreneurs in Black spaces, making Black businesses and pitching it to the Black community. So y'all, we all Black everything, Blackity, Black, Black, Black. <laughs> um, but we had to come out of the classroom and figure out how business for us would look online. And as we began cultivating a decision around our path forward, the civil unrest began. And we were like, wow, like we see people coming up with solutions, but these solutions seem like a good starting point. Get out there, put your body out there, make your voice heard, right? People are listening to you. But I thought this is going to make change now, right? But I'm not just about change that can happen overnight. I believe true change happens over time, right? And I was just like, in order for us to really get a solid footing in America, we have to be economically independent. But that's not gonna happen in a day. That's not gonna happen in a week. That's not gonna happen in two weeks, right? So I started thinking that, why don't we do a Buy Black campaign? But I didn't know of any by Black campaigns where I could point to it and say 7,000 people participated, 500 people participated, only two people participated, right? All the by Black campaigns that I was familiar with happened in response to protests to a corporation. 
So there was the H&M, Blackboard wears coolest monkey in the jungle. We punish white corporations for making mistakes by buying black, right? Starbucks, black men, customers are treated like criminals. We punish white corporations by buying black. You know, we Gucci, you know, everybody running around here with a Gucci belt, a Gucci purse, Gucci out, right? Gucci comes out, we pulls up with some black face. And all of a sudden we're like, Gucci, we got to put you on timeout. While you're on timeout, we're going to spend some time, but not all of our time with black businesses as a punishment. For me, buying black should not be a punishment to a white corporation. It should be a practice that we employ every single day. But how do you hold people accountable for participating in campaigns, specifically Black people for participating in campaigns, which ultimately benefit them? Because when you buy from a Black entrepreneur, they're more likely to hire Black employees. They're more likely to give back to Black causes. They're more likely to use their income to buy assets in Black communities and pass them down to their families who then expand upon the empire that they have established. When you started out, Christina, with your opening, you said the Black dollars circulates in the community six hours. That's less than our workday. If we can become more intentional about spending our dollars with Black entrepreneurs, then what we're saying is we can become more intentional about circulating that Black dollar longer than six hours. But since people love to put on for social media, we said, how can we make you accountable? Well, with your receipt. Right? Because I don't know too many people that's going to be trying to let me put a receipt, put this business on this receipt. Let me get this piece of paper, try to make it up just so I can put it up on social media. Maybe you'll do it once, but you won't do it two, three, four, or five times. And so that receipt for us was validation that you actually took your black dollar and put it in a black business over and over again. And with my black receipt, we've created a public counter, right? Where you can see that, yes, your individual input counted, but look at these thousands of other people across the country that are inputting their receipts. You can see their collective impact. We talk about the rebirth of Black Wall Street all the time, but I believe you can't birth Black Wall Street one by moving all 42 million Black people to one Black Wall Street, because that's going to be incredibly difficult, but you can do it by investing in Black entrepreneurs. And so with my Black receipt, what we're doing is challenging people to invest in a foundation of any Black Wall Street in a digital space, and that's the Black business owner. Once again, that is a lot to unpack. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, and I'm, I'm going to need Aurelia's help with the name of the book, but I've been reading a book that Aurelia um, recommended. And one of the things, um, this, this couple- Oh, our black dollar. Thank year. you. Year. Our black year. We have a our black year. Our black year. Yep. Thank you. I, I don't have my book with me. I apologize. And um, mm -hmm. it was some fascinating things that came out of it. I'm wondering once you, you, you know, I know you're working on getting data together and trying to figure out how things fell out. But my, one of my questions is, one thing that they found in this book were the lack of black grocery. I think there was no black grocery stores. There was one that went out of business. And mm -hmm. it made me think, especially when you launched my black receipt, I said to myself, okay, all right. So I went to a black cafe and spent money there. Of course, black hair care products. And then I went back to that book and I said, black grocery stores. Mm. And where can I find one? And so I'm wondering how are you going to break down the data? And so we can sort of, that will help identify some gaps of what we need to open up. 
Mm-hmm. So the great thing about the way the software was built is that when people upload their receipts, they're saying their name, their zip code, so we know where they're shopping specifically. So not even city, state, like zip code is going to take us like right into your locality. And then you input the business name and you also input what sector the business exists under. And we right now we have 16 sectors. We started with 10, we expanded to 16 sectors. And then you upload your receipt. And that lets us gives us even more information right so we're already going to be able to segment the data according to the 16 sectors to see where there's deficits and also to see where we're over indexing and spending Mm -hmm. and then we can go back to the receipt and if we're seeing that okay 30 percent of these dollars went to professional services well what were those services right we may be more accounting services and legal services but we know that we need perhaps more attorneys you mentioned the grocery stores a lot of people have asked that right now they're like i'm really just going to the grocery store and the pharmacy so if you can tell me where to get a black grocery store and a black old pharmacy like I will go to those two places because right now we in COVID and it's not a joke right and we are seeing that there is a deficit of that but I see like we're going to take all of this data we're going to wrap it into a report we're going to make it publicly available for everyone to see and we're hoping that that data helps entrepreneurs right or people who are entrepreneurial say I see the deficits and this is a problem and because I'm entrepreneurial I will create that solution. I think while corporations are awake, right, and all of a sudden people have discovered, oh my God, Black lives actually do matter, and me saying this on my corporation is going to ruin my bottom line, at least not right now, that we can lean on them, right, to say, this is a valuable investment for you to make, to help this entrepreneur, right, or these collection of entrepreneurs establish the types of enterprises that we need in Black spaces. Same with CDFI, same with policymakers, right? How are we using our tax dollars? I don't want my tax dollar to help pop belly, a small business, stay open, right? <laughs> like, I want my tax dollars to put a grocery store in my backyard, right? So how can this data help inform decision-making so they're not saying, well, it's your opinion that there's no Black grocery stores. No, our data is showing that people want to spend that way. We don't have that resource. With our tax dollars and your tax dollars, we can make that possible. Well, <laughs> And I think what's so great about this moment is that we are getting the chance to highlight initiatives that have been ongoing, right? Like the, uh, the Black Upstart has been, it didn't start with COVID. It didn't, just definitely didn't start right now in the last, you know, a couple of weeks with the protests. Um, I guess the path to 1555, a collaborative initiative between Kellogg Foundation, Serna Brooking and other experts did research and they said if 15% of black owned businesses were able to hire one more employee, the American economy could grow by 55 billion. And that was one of the things you were talking about before. And I really like that one of the things that you did with the 6,000 businesses that are listed on the website is that you've got, you already have different kinds of businesses. You've got furniture businesses, you've got other kinds of um, businesses. And I think for me, when I read Our Black Year, I was really struck by some of the creative the creativity that was used to make sure to buy black, right? So in the book, the author family commits to only buying from black businesses for an entire year. So that's everything under the sun, not just groceries, not just pharmacy, children's toys, shoes, gifts, insurance, um, car mechanics, gas, like absolutely (laughs) everything, right? And it's such a great book because she talks about what it took to find those different kinds of businesses. And one of the things that struck struck me was 
she found a black um, owned gas station that was was a franchise was a black owned gas station and she drove there it was not in her area she drove there she bought all these gift cards and that's Mm -hmm. what she used over the course of the year right to buy gas so I think part of what you're doing that's so important is that you're using creativity and ingenuity and data to give Mm -hmm. folks the ability to do something different and new and important because you know unlike her experiment we don't have to buy 100% black we could buy 5% black, 10% black. Right. It would make a right. huge, huge difference. Tell us a little bit about how you found the 6,000 businesses and what you want to see happen. Because like you mentioned before, there are only certain kinds of businesses right now where, um, well, there are only certain industries where there's a huge um, majority. I mean, that's where the majority of black businesses are started. And I think it is important to think about, you know, who is your accountant? Who is your lawyer? Who's your insurance agent? Who's your, you know, fill in the blank? Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that that's an important. And I, that was the part of the book that stood out to me as well, that she did have to get those gift cards in order to close the gap and still keep her dollar like circulating through a black owned business. And that <laughs> that was genius because I'm not sure if I would have thought about that but I think when you're when you're pushed up against a wall right and you have a need that needs to be met your kids need to eat your gas need your your car needs fuel you're going to find that solution um so shout out to them shout out to the writers of the book I mean I think that that shows us that it can be done it might not be easy but it's not impossible right for them impossible was just the starting point How do we find those businesses? We have over 300,000 people who follow us on Instagram. And um, we were first pushing out that people needed to RSVP to start buying black and uploading their receipts June 19th through July 4th. We've extend, uh, since extended the date to July 6th because that's a day before Blackout Day, right? Which is the national campaign to withdraw our dollars from the economy. Um, and we kept on hearing from business owners being like, but how can they find my business? How can they find my business? How can they? And we were like, okay, they're telling us that they wanna be a part of this RSVP process too. So let's create a Google form and see if we can get a couple hundred businesses on the list. And literally within 48 hours, we had over 3,000 businesses like registered. And we were like, whoa, <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, okay, we probably should have like integrated this into the front end. In fact, we were delayed on our launch because we were trying to go through and validate each one of those businesses and make sure that they were correctly categorized because we weren't expecting this, this interest. I think black business owners are looking for this visibility, especially the online businesses, especially the entrepreneurs who are working full time and doing their business after hours. So going to work nine to five, building their business from six to midnight. They're looking for this type of access. And I think that they are tired of people saying tag a black owned business. It's a very honorable endeavor for folks to say tag a black owned business. But has anyone ever tried to sift through all of those comments? Like, especially when it's a celebrity has 6,000 comments and it's just like who's going to go to 6,000 pages because the data is not organized and I think that these entrepreneurs were seeking an avenue by which they could get visibility when they're competing with larger businesses that have greater name recognition and so for our um, list what we do is we list it according to sector we provide a website we do allow Instagram pages to qualify as well for a website we realize that there are some infrastructure issues like there's some capacity building and needs to happen for those super micro micro businesses and then we 
And then what we do is we actually have them list the products that they sell as well. Then we categorize the business based off of if you're inside or outside the United States. So that was another thing that we realized. There were people from Black business owners in Shanghai, China, and like Lagos, Nigeria. They're like, we want to participate too. So are you looking to buy in or outside the United States? And also what city and state are you seeking? So people can get super specific about where they buy and what areas they buy. The other thing that we're seeing as well, which has been incredibly inspiring, is that if they don't see a business that they know represented on the list, and they see that people are asking about it through our social media, they will contact that business owner and tell them to register. So we have businesses on the list, like Maven, right? Maven was a Black-owned business that got VC, you know, venture capital, over a million dollars in venture capital. I mean, super success. People can go buy hair extensions. But we also have Aunt Dot's Cupcake Chop. And her website is Facebook. And somebody was looking for baked goods in the city in which she lived. And people were like, Aunt Dot makes cupcakes. Why isn't she on this list? And Aunt Dot contacted us and was like, how can I get on your list? And now she's listed. You know, so it's like a whole range, a whole community. And that's why for us, this feels a lot like Black Wall Street because we're in it together. Like we're really trying to prepare the relationships between Black entrepreneurs and Black consumers. Because we know that it has been a very contentious you know, relationship. You know, people are upset because folks are asking for the family and friends discount. And it's just like, I'm not even related to you. You know, people are like, but ain't all, all skin folk, kin folk. No, we don't even have my bloodline. Like I charge my aunt and uncle full price. It costs to make this, right? And then we also have the permanent boycott of black owned businesses because one of them made you upset. Right. So you pulled up in a business, they perhaps gave you less than stellar customer service. And instead of holding them accountable for that and giving them another opportunity, it's all black owned businesses are like that. Not this black owned business needs work. And on the other side of that is the black entrepreneurs that are struggling with capacity building, but not being transparent. I'm a mother. I work nine to five. I'm doing this business. and I want to provide this service, but you won't get it in two days. And I'm sorry, I can get it to you in five or six days. You know, so that transparency or just because they look like you, just because they do look like skin folk and kin folk, perhaps you shouldn't be like, what's up, my G? Maybe she say, hello, how can I help you? <laughs> you know, so like, I think that there's a, a repair of the relationship between Black consumers and Black entrepreneurs. And I see that happening in this space because people are realizing that when we choose each other, everybody wins. I, I love everything that you just said. Um, so, so two points to mindset change, right? So yours yeah. just in terms of as a business owner, understanding your capacity, being transparent about that and communicating to your customers goes a yeah. long way, especially when your customers are, uh, wanting to support you and get you the, uh, uh, help you sustain for the long term. The other, right. and you kind of referenced it in the book, um, Our Black Year, what I appreciated about it was the rewiring of her family to think right. about where they spend their money and that intentionality. Mm -hmm. And as a mother of, you know, 13 and almost 12 year old, it is, you know, I bring it up all the time. I'm like, okay, is there a black owner that makes this? And my kids yeah. are like, oh, mommy, why do you keep asking me that? But now they'll come and say, I want to buy here. And guess what? It's a black woman who owns this or it's a black boy, uh, man who owns it. So that rewiring is so, so critical. Yes. Um, 
and I love your Instagram. Your Instagram is always like something we oh, go the Instagram time. is on fire. It's on fire. So <laughs> I, our you listeners, you all. yeah, our listeners must go and follow you uh, on your Instagram. But you posted, uh, I think it was the other, I don't know when it was, a couple of weeks ago maybe, that if every protester right now, Black mm-hmm. and white, spent just $50 a week on a Black-owned business, we could close the wealth gap this mm-hmm. lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, Last year, around July 4th, consumers spent, I think it was somewhere $6.7 billion on July 4th alone. You picked a target for this, my uh, Black receipt, to have people spend $5 million between June 19th and July 4th or July 6th now. How did you come to that $5 million uh, mark? And then, you know, what what do you want to signal to the folks now, because I think right now you're at somewhere over 600,000 of receipts posted. Yeah, yeah, we're-, we're Congratulations. Thank you, thank you so much, <laughs> y'all. We had, oh my God, I'm not sure if y'all saw the video where I like literally cried. I have never cried on social media before, but our website was not supposed to be working June 19th at noon. So like I said, we had to delay the, the launch because we were trying to upload uh, the businesses on there and make sure that they were correct. But like right, literally at eight o'clock, right when we were about to release the site, the form stopped working. So it's just like, what? The form is not working. The counter is not working. This is like one of the cornerstones of the movement and the developers were working. They were like, we just don't see enough. We need another maybe eight to 10 hours. I was like, Juneteenth will not be happening in eight to 10 hours. They were like, yeah, but you have all of these days. I'm like, but June 19th will happen until 2021. And uh, Thank God, like literally thank God. I know people say that, but I really literally thank mm-hmm. him because <laughs> minutes, literally minutes before 9 a.m., the form started working. Like wow. we were testing, we're like, we cannot believe this is working. And it was restored. And, like, divine that, intervention once again. Divine intervention, right? Juneteenth, the form is is working. And so like, I'm grateful for the team. I have to shout out the tech team behind this. We have an all black team working on this black male tech lead, black female tech development team working on the back end now, the structural supports. Um, oh, sorry. What was your question? Because you just took me back. All the way to well, well I'll, I'll ask my question again. But I also want to highlight two things that you said as someone who is a woman in tech and have built, you know, enterprise systems. There's always bugs that come up. And to your point, what you started off, the intent changed because so many people came to you. And so the requirements expanded and building and having a tech solution to support more people than you expected is really critical. So kudos to you for working with the team and getting that done. Uh, But my question was around, how did you come to the $5 million as a target? $5 million. Yes. So we wanted at least 50,000 people to participate in this campaign and spend over $1,000 in the campaign. Um, But also like $5 million to us, I'll just be quite frank. It was like, how much money do you think we should spend? $5 million was just really off top. (laughs) I was like, $5 $5 million, 15 days, Juneteenth, it was the alliteration, and then we did the math on the back end. So y'all got some inside baseball. So when I was like, out of $1.3 trillion, I was like, $5 million should literally just be, in my opinion, a drop in the bucket. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that people support it. Of course, Black consumers were pushing the hardest, but we also invite the support of allies. Our first $2,400 donation towards this campaign came from 
a white male um, owned company in North Carolina that does lawn services. It was just like, I see the vision in this and I want to contribute to it. I want to give a charitable contribution. And that helped seed the black female team that was initially hired to make sure that the back end stayed functioning throughout the campaign. So allies are invited to participate as well. So I mentioned earlier about the, your your Instagram social media game is just on fire. And I've been following you for a number of years. Oh, and, thank you. Oh, yeah. I've been following I got Vanessa to sign up for my Black Receipt. She was on the phone with me and Mikia. Mikia mentioned it. I had Mikia on the phone with Vanessa for business reasons. And then it came up during our conversation. And she said, Zena, what? You're supposed to be my PR person. You're supposed to tell me about these things. And I'm like, now here I'm hearing it from somebody else. So, um, hey, congrats to you. So, you know, how did you do the marketing and PR? I know CNN just, you know, I saw, I saw how excited you were. CNN reached out. I was excited to see the post on social media. I mean, how, it, how, how did you first come up? You kind of talked about a little bit how you came up with the five million. That's right. marketing. Great. But in terms of the PR, and can you talk a little bit about that and how you've been doing? I think you've been getting some really good write-ups uh, in black from black media and also from mainstream. So the, were you expecting it? Did you care? I would love to hear your thoughts around that. So I thought about this question. Actually, our team has dis discussed this question um, a, a lot and how we would potentially share the answer publicly in a way that I think is affirm affirming, uh, but also honest. Um, so I'll, I'll start with the good news and I'll start with I'll start with what has raised a question in my mind. And I think an opportunity for us to really really think through why, you know, the why behind that, that question. Good news is we didn't pay for any PR support. We wanted to, but then we had some tech issues that we needed, we needed to pay our dev team in order to solve. And it was like, we can pay a PR team or we can have a working website and we can't promote someone to buy a product that doesn't work. So like, or to access a product, use a product that's smart. <laughs> Not work. So we need to take that money and we need to pay these black women because when you invest in black women, they guarantee the returns. So we cut that budget. And we said, we are going to reach out to people within our network. So there's four other men who are on the strategy team with me, Tyler Graves Mans from Knox Street Studios, um, Daryl Perkins from Broccoli City, Jabral, 19 Keys, sorry, that's just government. Okay, 19 Keys with the, the Black uh, Standard and Torrance Reed, who is our tech lead with HBCU Wall Street. So we said, well, if we put our, our heads together, our networks together, we will reach out to people and we will beg them to cover this story. To be quite frank, the people that we asked to support us were in Black media, and there wasn't much interest, and we were shocked. So we were like, well, we're just going to have what? to push this. It was not much interest, and that's why I said we, we struggled with trying to tell the story because we wanted to be like all Black everything, but that was reluctant, and it was a full court press. Like, y'all need to tell this story. Here's the press release. Can I call you? Can I talk to you about it? Prior to June 19th, there was no proof of concept. So we were really asking them to believe in our vision. We were not getting much traction. And we received a notification from really white-led press that we want to cover you. CNBC, Huffington Post, USA Today. Um, who else was, we were interviewing Forbes, you know, so we were interviewing with that. Shout out to Black women, actually. I, I begged and pleaded with them, can we please be in Forbes? And after three days, they were like, we got you, girl. Don't worry, we just been a little bit backed up. So Forbes, 
All of these interviews were conducted prior to June 19th around June 17th or so for release after the dates. And we had already locked in our partnership with Yelp, which wasn't going to be released until the 18th. So we knew that was happening a week prior. It wasn't until Yelp made their major announcement and the article came out, the first news article came out with Forbes, that Black media reached out to us and was just like, oh, okay, we will cover this story. And, you know, I, I, part of me was like, I don't think, <laughs> you know, perhaps there's no sinister intention behind it because these are our personal relationships. But I think we do have to ask ourselves, do we endorse a product, right, a project or a business because a white corporate did, right? Because white corporate, white people, a white brand said that this is okay. So they said this is okay and we believe that it's okay. Right? So Yelp was a big deal. That's when people started sharing it on their networks. Hey, everybody, this is legit. This is legit. When Forbes covered us, for whatever reason, people thought we were a scam. I'm like, I don't know when we're a scam. We're not asking anybody for any money. Right, <laughs> just right. asking for you to upload a receipt. But when Forbes covered us, all of a sudden that legitimized our business in a way that our word could not. And so it was a little we were happy to finally see it show up in black media, but the question that we had was, how can we make sure that when we're moving forward, when we communicate the vision of something that we believe could be impactful to the black community, that our media voices, black media voices, get the opportunity to tell the story first. Well, what's so interesting about this story is typically when I have, majority of my clients are black. So I'll go to the black media first and pitch them. And, mm -hmm. and I know one of my clients who I was waiting to get picked up, um, a, 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 the white media came to me and said, we don't see anything out there um, from the black media about this particular, you know, this, this project mm -hmm. or campaign. And typically it, it kind of works in the reverse. So I'm real, I am a little surprised to hear this. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, the white true. media responses responds when they see more black media pick up the story and then they'll see it and they'll write about it. So yeah, uh, yeah you're right. That's something we need to really look look into and talk about. Like we gotta stop waiting for white people to endorse us. We really do. And yeah. uh, I mean, I think that's, and that's the first thing that came to my mind when you said that. Again, and that was, and that was actually our plan as well for Black Upstar. We've had features in Black Enterprise and Blavity, you know, there are other outlets like that, Afro-American newspaper. And so we thought that that was going to be the path of least resistance. And again, perhaps they were busy. Uh, we didn't think that a Yelp endorsement, in fact, we thought that a Yelp endorsement would dilute the impact of it. People would think that we got co-opted. So like, we were actually concerned about working with Yelp. We didn't think that people would think that we had an equal seat at the table, though we were a smaller startup initiative. I was worried about it too, to be honest with you. You were on the same page because I was concerned. Oh, I heard Yelp. I was like, oh, I hope that, oh. I mean, I was kind of like, yeah. but it's yeah. not okay, but I was concerned. So you, you were yeah. right to think in that direction. Yeah, yeah, and it ended, again, it ended up being the opposite. But mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things that we have to begin having intentional conversations about what the black standard is and how that's legitimate, which is why I've never backed the whole concept that I wanna be the next black Bill Gates in the making. 
No matter how hard I try, I will never be white. I will never be male. I will never benefit from white male privilege. That's impossible. So I don't ever want to be the next black Bill Gates in the making. And if I, if I let's say that if I really wanted to, like physiologically, right, biologically speaking, it is impossible. However, thank God there is a black standard. There is such a thing as black privilege. And I think the more we lean into the value that exists in black spaces and black people and black businesses, I think the easier it will be for us to legitimize exactly what we're doing with us and by us. Yeah, um, I, I know we're, we're running low on time, but we have <laughs> several more questions for you. And I, I you know, you know, on every show I bring up partnerships, love partnerships all the time. I actually think the most unlikely partnerships are the ones that drive change. And yeah. so I was actually pleased when I saw the Yelp partnership. But I'm curious what value you hope that partnership brings. And then what other organizations or partnerships might you need right now to keep this momentum going and to get the end result that you want? Yeah, it's a great question. So with Yelp, prior to our conversation, they were already developing a solution for Black entrepreneurs to attribute their enterprises to being Black-owned, but it had not gained traction yet. So they had released the information and kind of a soft launch, and they had seen an uptick, but then not, again, they had not gotten Black businesses to really sign on the way that they wanted. And so partnership made sense for us because we had already said we have over 6,000 businesses in our registry, and here's an opportunity for a Black upstart to market to those businesses to let them know that this Yelp benefit was available. But on the other end of things, we know that right now, a lot of consumers, both Black, White, and otherwise, use Yelp as an opportunity or a function to search for businesses in their spaces. And because we know finding brick and mortar Black-owned businesses in your space is really difficult to do, even online businesses, I know that Yelp does that too, here was an opportunity for Black-owned businesses to get increased visibility and for Black consumers to know how to buy Black intentionally if they chose to do that. So that's why the partnership made sense in that aspect. Um, we're also starting to have conversations with other corporations that have marketplaces of Black business owners. So we're hoping that those conversations are also fruit fruitful. We're also talking to online um, businesses. So like official Black Wall Street, that's run, That's an Instagram page run by a Black woman. I had a conversation with her. She's doing a 30-day campaign around Buy Black, right? So it's like we have a lot of Buy Black campaigns. Like let's join together because we will push your message and your message if you just add and upload your receipt. You know, we can all win. Everybody's campaign could be successful. We can also have proof of concept. So we're being intentional about those partnerships as well. And I have a question on, um, I know one, someone mentioned this to me before, uh, you know, in terms of identifying as a black business right now, there's a lot of pros about doing that. And there may be some business owners who might be afraid or, or timid yeah. in actually identifying as a black business. How do you address that with uh, the businesses that you're working with now? It's so interesting because Yelp had real concerns around um, businesses attributing themselves as being Black-owned, right? There's people who are super excited about it, but they were also super cognizant that there could be bad actors. And shout out to Yelp. They actually put an entire team on this where they would look for reviews that may be bogus that bring down the star rating of a black owned business like they have a whole wow. internal team working on that and I, I think that that's a really good decision but they were shocked 
that this might happen. And part of the open conversations that you have, like when you said you have unlikely partners, I was like, well, I'm not shocked. I know Black-owned businesses all the time that will take Black-owned off of it because they think that it might impact sales. And I think that that's a conversation that we should lean into having. Like, why is this happening, right? Do we, do we not identify as a Black-owned business because of 5%, 10%, 15% of bad actors, but not capitalize on the 85% of people that are just like, forget that. Like, I'm looking for a Black-owned business right now, and I'm going to intentionally spend my dollars there. I think there needs to be more training around how to navigate that complex space. We know that people sometimes get conscious for a few minutes and then go back to sleep for a couple of hours. You know, so like, again, how can you pivot as a business owner and make the best decisions with your, to generate more cash flow? I don't think there's been enough conversations and trainings around that. We've seen a lot more corporations stand in solidarity and pledge to invest, grant, and or spend money with Black-owned businesses. How, if at all, are you factoring this into your campaign? We are planning, so I got two answers for that. I got a Professor Keys answer, I got a My Black Receipt. <laughs> so for My Black Receipt, we are planning a day where it's going to be, um, uh, what is it, what do we call it? We're calling it uh, White Invoices Black Receipts name and development but essentially white allies black receipts boom got it i knew it was gonna come to me ladies <laughs> so like if you are going to be an ally put your receipt where your protest is white allies we need you to get your black receipt right tag a white ally get them to go buy from a black owned business right so like we're going to be intentional about making sure that from the corporate level because again we've been like a couple of corporations want to be in partnership with this movement how do you make that public and you challenge those people who support you to go buy from a black owned business but then let's get personal with it right who are some white folks brown folks you know people that you know who are not black that are still allies to the movement and how can we bring their income into a black owned business so it can circulate within our spaces. Now, the Professor Key's response to that is I think we need to understand the difference between a grant and a fund. You know, a grant is the money that you plan to give. A fund is a promise. How much money is in that fund? And I think a lot of people aren't asking that question. We have a $300 million fund. How many millions are in the fund right now? Because if we talk about five, ten thousand dollars $10,000, then boo, you're making an announcement, right? You're not really making change. And I think that sometimes we, we see these announcements with big numbers next to a fund and people's automatic assumption is that they have the money and they're ready to deploy it. It's not true. It's not true at all. So I think we need to hold the feet to the fire. What money do you have right now that will benefit us that you will deploy this year, this year? Secondly, I think we need to move outside of the space that only five Black organizations can solve all of Black America's problems. Y'all already know that I rock with UNCF. UNCF just got $40 million from Netflix. A card-carrying member of Urban League, I support NAACP. I started a chapter of that in my college. They cannot solve all of Black America's problems, but they've done a great job thus far. There are organizations on the ground like the Black Men Can, Black, Black Swan Academy. There are people doing work at the local level and their work is valuable, but they do not have the capacity or the resources to compete with 100-year-old, 76-year-old organizations. And so I think internally, these corporations need to have conversations about how do you get that to trickle down to at all levels of Black nonprofits, Black charities, and Black businesses 
businesses that are doing the work to serve the community and building internal capacity enough to hire Black employees. Kezia, I just love all of the things that you have said today. We're definitely going to have to bring you back and certainly follow up on what happens with My Black Receipt. I mean, this is really, yeah. really exciting stuff. Um, one of the things that I want to highlight, particularly given my industry, is some of your comments around online businesses, right? There is need for capacity building. A lot of businesses either don't have an online presence or aren't leveraging it very well, or they're learning, particularly in times of COVID, how important it is to have the ability to shop online, to do things online. Um, and so I will um, bring in a quote from Maggie Anderson and then ask you if you have anything final you want to say before we do our summary. And so Maggie Anderson from Our Black Year again says, the ground rules for our new lifestyle and the lifestyle we hope other African-Americans would embrace were simple. If we are going to make a purchase, we take a few minutes to do some research and see if we could get what we wanted from a black owned business. So I just think that that is so important and really what we want to highlight today is to encourage everyone, not just um, black, Americans or black people worldwide to, to buy from black owned businesses, but for all of us. Is there any final comments you want to say before we do our summary? And of course, we'll, we'll definitely be promoting your Instagram and all sorts of stuff like that, but tell people where they can find you and if there's any final comments. Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, black wealth is a mindset <clears throat> before it's an asset. And I'm going to say that one more time because that's exactly what Maggie Anderson was saying. Like black wealth is a mindset before it's an asset. When you have the mindset of a black wealth creator, you know a couple things. You know that income is not assets, right? You can make all the income in the world, but when you die, your income dies with you. But if you can accumulate assets, right, then you can pass those assets down to the next generation. That generation passes it down to the next generation. That next generation passes it down to the next, next generation. And so on and so forth. So it's as a man thinketh, so is he. As a woman thinketh, so is she. If you want to make change, it starts up here first. One of the things that I say in all of my lives is this. Rising tides lift all boats. Everyone loves to jump up on a good sounding meme. Folks are focused on being the boat, right? But I think we need to focus on being the tide right? Because if you're the boat, you're trying to figure out who can be the highest boat up on the, the tide. But if you're the boat on the tide, then you're at the, the, the control of wherever the tide goes. When you are the tide, that means that every boat in the ocean, you lift as you rise, right? So you have that mindset where wealth for the Black community includes all of us. Not just some of us, not just those with the biggest boat, not just those with the medium-sized boat. You realize that when you're making a purchase as an individual, it's not a purchase that just benefits you. It's a purchase that can benefit an entire community. But that starts with a mindset change that can become an asset to the entire Black community. We must be the tide and not the boat. Oh, so much, so many great points. And as Aurelia said, we absolutely have to have you back on. You know, this, this is a movement, right? This is history in the making. And you are a huge part of this. And so we appreciate all of your leadership, your creativity, you. your authenticity, your, your take 
divine intervention and, and create, I think you said, you know, they gave you the task of breathing life into a program. And what you are doing for us now is bringing, bringing life and breathing life into this movement. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so so much. (laughs) And there were two things we didn't get a chance to talk about. And that is what Aurora James has done with the pledge 15% asking retailers to um, buy 15% of merchandise Mm -hmm. from black owned businesses. We didn't get a chance Mm -hmm. to talk about Robert Smith urging corporations to use 2% of their annual net income the next Mm -hmm. decade to empower minority businesses. And we did not talk about Bob Johnson's reparations. So those can be three separate shows. So we hope you (laughs) will come back. But but let me unpack kind of I think what my top five, maybe six takeaways were is one, we talked about black economic empowerment. And one of the points you made that I think is really strong for our listeners is we need more black job creators to better circulate Mm -hmm. the black dollar. Mm -hmm. Um, We also talked about, you know, that as individuals, our purpose doesn't change, but and this is particularly for entrepreneurs listening, sometimes the plan to get there does. So we must be prepared to pivot. We also talked about the types of black businesses that exist versus where we're actually spending our money, $1.5 trillion, and both the historical disadvantages and advantages of how businesses should move forward. And so Kesey is encouraging aspiring entrepreneurs to pay attention to those needs and start building businesses where we're spending our money. Kizzy also talked about her experience we just mentioned in terms of how she took this divine intervention after leaving her corporate role and demonstrating what happens when you're given autonomy, advocacy, and opportunity to make a change. Um, We talked about how buying Black should not be a punishment, rather a mindset. And as Kizzy had just mentioned, Black wealth is a mindset before it is an asset. We also talked about the need to be more intentional about buying. Uh, My Black receipt is helping challenge not just Black Americans, but all Americans and spending with Black-owned businesses. Starting with the 6,000 registered businesses that she has, she's helping to create awareness of the existing businesses and using this data to help inform future policies and spending. We know that true change happens over time. And so to our listeners, we ask that you go to myblackreceipt.com, become aware of the plethora of Black-owned businesses that exist across the nation. Consider buying and uploading your receipt As we mentioned, this is a movement. We don't have to lean on any one corporation. We don't have to lean on the historical organizations that have held up the black community. Change starts with us, our families, and how we encourage our children and ourselves towards the future. Let's be the tide. Please visit us at getfoundgetfunded.com and join us on a future episode. And please follow Kezia at K-E-Z-I-A-M-W, at Kezia M-W on Instagram. See you soon.